Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. My sermon text this evening is taken from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Galatians, and our focus will be on Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but I'm going to read uh, from chapter 3, verse 26, through chapter 4, verse 7, sort of the fill in the context here. So let us hear God's holy word, beginning at Galatians 3, verse 26, and going through chapter 4, verse 7. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And again, our sermon text is verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Dear friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Join me in prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing upon the proclamation of his word. Our gracious Lord and Father in heaven, we ask that by your spirit once again that you would give us open and receptive hearts. Lord, humble us that we might receive instruction from your word. Challenge us, confront us where necessary, build us up, comfort us, encourage us. Strengthen our faith, hope, and love. And once again... Fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Grant unto me, your unworthy servant, the grace to declare your word in a clear way, with power and assistance by your spirit, for the glory of your name, the salvation of the lost, and the edification of your saints. We pray these things through Christ our Lord and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. title of my sermon this evening is The Fullness of Time, and uh, if you're following along in your sermon outline, there are some important words to be listening for in my sermon this evening. Fullness, gospel, grace, law, redemption, and uh, one of my favorite words in scripture, adoption. Well, dear ones, our text for this Lord's Day evening is a marvelous summary of the message that uh, we celebrate during the Advent season and on Christmas Day, 
And that is the message that at just the right time, God's appointed time, God the Father sent forth his Son into this world to redeem fallen sinners like me and like you. This is an incredible message. It's a message that no other religion on the face of this earth uh, teaches or proclaims. As we will get into in a bit, I will explain one of the things that makes the biblical gospel, true biblical Christianity, different from, uh, from false religions, man-made religions, is precisely this truth, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And so let's dive into our text for this evening. I first want you to observe, brothers and sisters, that the sending forth of God's Son to be born of a woman happened at the time appointed by God the Father. This is my first main point in your outline. The sending forth of God's Son to be born of a woman happened at the time appointed by God the Father. Again, as we read in verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. What does Paul mean by this language of the fullness of time? The Greek word is the pleroma of time. Well, the fullness of time refers to God's predetermined time. You ever wonder why it is that God sent the Savior, the Messiah, at the particular point in time in human history when he chose to send Jesus? I've heard atheists and skeptics say, well, why did God wait for so much human history to come and go before he decided to send Jesus to be the Savior of sinners? Why didn't he send Jesus earlier on in human history? Well, God had his wise plans and reasons and purposes for that apparent delay. At God's predetermined time, he sent forth his Son. God's sovereignty over time and over history is asserted here, is assumed here in this statement. As I said in my sermon this morning, and I will repeat it this evening, hopefully not repeating it ad nauseum, but it is a point that we need to take to heart. Again, history is his story. The coming of Jesus Christ to this earth means that the fullness of time, the fullness of the time has come. Oh, wonder of wonders. What an amazing thing that God the Father would send his only begotten Son into this world to redeem unworthy, hell-deserving sinners like me and like you. There's some important takeaways from this point here that Paul asserts uh, in this passage. This, uh, this passage of God's Word uh, reveals to us and, and reinforces to us the uniqueness of the gospel message. Biblical Christianity, historic, Bible-based Christianity, is the only faith that proclaims that the true and living God himself actually came down to this earth and took upon himself our human nature. He became a man in order to bring fallen man back into a right relationship with himself. And think about the direction of that. It's not man climbing up to God. We don't climb Jacob's ladder or whatever. It's God comes down to us to bring us, who had fallen away from him, back into a right relationship with himself. 
Whereas man-made religion reverses that and has man climbing his way up the mountain to God. Dear listener, are you in a right relationship with God? Well, you're in a right relationship with God if you believe this good news, if you are trusting in the one whom God the Father sent to be the Savior and Redeemer of sinners. You're not in a right relationship with God if you're trying to merit or earn your salvation by good deeds or religiosity. Because if you were to uh, seek to be in a right relationship with God through your own works, you'd have to be perfect. You'd have to be sinless. Because God is perfect. God is sinless. Heaven is a perfect, sinless place. And you need a perfect righteousness to serve as your title to heaven. And as a fallen sinner in Adam, you and I don't have that perfect righteousness. We don't have, we don't possess in ourselves that title to heaven. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus so that whoever believes in him might be given that title to heaven, might be cleansed from sin and clothed in the perfect everlasting righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man, and he is the only way to the Father. Trust in him for salvation from sin. And by the grace of God, you will be saved. Another thing about the gospel, it underscores God's initiative in salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the biblical gospel, is fundamentally theocentric, which is a fancy way of saying it's God-centered. It's not man-centered. Whereas, again, in contrast, false religion, man-made religion, teaches man's initiative in salvation, or at least man's cooperation in the attaining of his own salvation. You see, man-made religions basically teach that humanity is basically good in seeking after God, or at least humanity is morally neutral and thus is capable uh, of seeking after God, that man has a free will that is capable in its own strength and power to decide for Christ and to seek him. But what does the Bible teach? Well, I could spend a long time talking about uh, uh, total depravity and what the scriptures teach about man's sinfulness. But the, the word of God teaches that man is a fallen creature, fallen in Adam, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1, and so forth. Therefore, salvation is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God takes the first step towards us. We don't take the first step towards Him. And if you take a step towards God, if you open your heart to God, it's because He's first opened your heart and drawn you with the cords of love unto Himself. This is all assumed by the statement when the fullness of time came. God sent forth His Son. God is the one who takes the initiative in our salvation. Our part is a, a, a response of grace. Ultimately, our faith itself is a gift of God, purchased by Jesus for his people. And so there's no reason to boast. There's no cause for boasting, for Jesus did it all. Again, the gospel proclaims that God reached out to us first. God is the one who acts to deliver his people and, of course, his greatest act of deliverance was the sending forth of his son into this world to redeem his people from their sins. 
So who is this son that the father sends forth? Well, consider next what our text teaches us about the kind of person Jesus is. Consider what this teaches us about the kind of person Jesus is. In theological terminology, this passage has much to teach us about Christology, which is, again, a fancy theological word that means the doctrine of the person of Christ. Well, we learn from this uh, terminology here in verse 4, first of all, that Jesus Christ is God. We are told God, meaning God the Father, sent forth his Son. Now, this statement that God sent forth his Son implies a number of things about Jesus. First of all, it implies the pre-existence of Christ as the Son of God. There are some who teach that Jesus did not become the Son of God or did not receive the title as Son of God until his incarnation. However, Galatians chapter uh, 4, verse 5, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, Galatians 4, verse 4, the statement that God sent forth his Son implies that Christ was the Son prior to being sent forth from the Father. God in the fullness of time, sent forth whom? He sent forth his Son, the one who before his incarnation was the eternal Son of God. And thus, this passage also not only implies the pre-existence of Christ as the Son of God, it implies his eternal sonship. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. This uh, passage supports the doctrine of the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. And so all of this serves to underscore our Lord's full deity. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his eternal, pre-existent, divine Son. But notice it goes on to say, when the fullness of time God sent, uh, came, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman. Born of a woman. What does that imply? That implies that Jesus is truly human. For though he is the eternal, pre-existent, divine Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, in his incarnation, he became a man. He was born of a woman. The fact of Christ being the Son of God underscores his divinity. The fact that he was born of a woman meaning, of course, the Virgin Mary, underscores his genuine humanity. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, united in one divine person. He is the God-man. He is the Word made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In him, the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell in bodily form, as Paul tells us in Colossians That was the only way that he could be qualified, by the way, to serve as our Savior. Our sin is so serious and heinous in the sight of the infinite, holy Creator God that only God Himself can rescue us and redeem us from our sins. But He can only do so as our representative. And so He clothed Himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, clothed Himself with our humanity in the Incarnation to serve as the second Adam. The second Adam who undoes all the harm that was done by the first Adam. 
the second Adam, the last Adam who succeeded where the first Adam failed. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. As it says in uh, in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the man, our representative man, the one in whom we are forgiven and saved. And how did that occur? How did that salvation, how was that made possible? Well, notice next that we're told in, in the latter part of verse 4 that Jesus was born under the law. Again, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, when God's preordained, predetermined time came, God, God the Father, sent forth His Son, born of a woman, there's the incarnation, but next, born under the law. What does that mean? What is Paul talking about when he says that Christ was born under the law? Jesus was certainly born in a Jewish context. Jesus himself, with respect to his humanity, he was a Jewish man. He was born as a Jew under the obligation of keeping the Mosaic law. He was born under the demands of God's law in order that he might fulfill that law on behalf of his people. And also in order to redeem them from the curse of the law against sin by dying on the cross. You see, in Adam, we are under the law as a covenant of works. Adam is a covenant breaker. and In him, we are all covenant breakers. We are conceived and born as covenant breakers, as lawbreakers, lawless ones. So the law condemns us, even from our conception. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, kept the law perfectly for us. And he suffered the curse of the law in our place, in our stead. And so this statement that Christ was born under the law, it's such a brief and simple statement, but so much is packed into that statement. Christ, the eternal Son of God, born of a woman in his incarnation, was born under the law. He was born under the law as a covenant of works. And he, the second, the last Adam, perfectly kept this covenant of works for us. And he suffered the penalty of that covenant for us that we might be redeemed from our sin. And so Christ has provided us not only full atonement for our sins, but a perfect righteousness. How did he do this? He did this by both his preceptive and his penal obedience, meaning that he perfectly kept the precepts of God's holy law for us, and he suffered the penalty, the curse of the law, in our place, in our stead. Indeed, the scriptures tell us he became a curse for us that we might receive the blessings of his grace and salvation. The theologians refer to these different aspects of our Lord's obedience under the law as his active and his passive obedience. His active obedience meaning his living for us as the second Adam, his meriting a perfect righteousness for us, and his passive obedience referring to his sacrifice on the cross to redeem us from our sins. And those aren't two, really, those aren't two different obediences. They are inextricably intertwined. Christ would not be able to 
die on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for our sins if he did not perfectly obey God's law as the second Adam. But nevertheless, we can distinguish those two aspects of his obedience. And it is by his obedience that we are redeemed, saved, justified, kept. It is in him that we have full and free salvation from first to last. Beloved, our Savior was born not only to die for us, but also to obey God's law for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the good news is not only that Jesus died for your sins. Praise God, he did die for our sins. And we celebrate that uh, as God's people when we gather around the Lord's table, as we are scheduled to do this evening. And, and we have this memorial celebration of Christ. Christ's body being broken for us, his blood shed for us. In other words, Jesus dying for us to offer full atonement for us. But praise God, our Lord Jesus Christ also lived for us. Jesus was born for you. Jesus lived for you. Jesus died for you. He rose for you. He ascended for you. He reigns at the Father's right hand where he now as your great high priest intercedes for you. And again, one day he will return in glory to come and take you to be with him forever. And so as we wrap up our time this evening, consider next, as my final point, consider the blessings of redemption and adoption that Christ has won for his people. Consider the blessings of redemption and adoption that Christ has won for his people. This is brought out by Paul in verse 5 where he says, uh, he, he, saw, he speaks of, of Christ doing all these things. God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. See, in Adam, we were under the law as a covenant of works. We were covenant breakers by nature, by fallen nature in Adam. But, praise God, Jesus Christ was born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption as sons. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were expelled from God's presence. They lost their status as a son and daughter of God. And humanity was was sent east of Eden. Humanity was sent out uh, to toil upon the cursed soil. But now in Christ, we've been adopted. We've been brought back into the garden, if you will. We've been brought back into a right relationship with God through Christ. And all of this was that, as Paul writes, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, adoption means being taken into the family of God. Redemption refers to being bought back, rescued from our our slavery to sin and its consequences. Adoption means not only being free from slavery, it means being brought into the very family of God. What are some takeaways from this? Well, first of all, beloved, if Jesus had not been born... He would not have been able to die on the cross to redeem us or to rise from the dead. That's pretty obvious, yes, but we need to remember that. The importance of Christ's incarnation and birth is is in the fact that he came to this earth. God sent him forth to be our Redeemer, our Savior. 
To quote from uh, Dr. Philip Graham Riken in his commentary on Galatians, Dr. Riken writes, Christ had to be born before he could die, of course. There could be no Easter without Christmas. But God the Son was born of the Virgin in order to die on the cross. Let those words sink in. Jesus was not born so that we could have uh, ooey-gooey sentimental manger scenes and, and all of that. Jesus Christ was born in order to die. That baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger whom we remember and celebrate uh, this time of year. He did that so that he might be able to grow up and ultimately go to the cross. Again, Dr. Reichen goes on to say, Christianity is not a religion of stable and straw. It is a religion of thorns and nails, wood and blood. The incarnation cannot save us without the crucifixion. Christ did not redeem us by his life alone. He redeemed us through his death. And that is why, uh, and that central point is why, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus did not appoint Christmas as a holy day, for example. That's a wonderful, edifying celebration, but it is a man-made celebration. But Jesus said, what? Do this in remembrance of me. He took the bread. He took the wine. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Because that which we remember and memorialize in the Lord's Supper is that which is central in redemptive history. That was the goal towards which redemptive history flowed. Beloved in Christ, Jesus did not only redeem us from the curse of the law, by his grace, praise God, he also adopted us as his sons and his daughters. That means that in Christ, you and I belong to the family of God. You see, before we come to Christ, before God saves us, we are, yes, we are creatures of God. We were created in his image, but we are fallen creatures And we are children of the devil, spiritually speaking, apart from Christ. But in Christ, we are his adopted sons and daughters. Again, to quote from Dr. Reichen, he says, Once Christ had gained our freedom, he gathered us into his family. He went beyond redemption to adoption, turning slaves into sons. When Jesus died and rose again, he not only paid for our freedom, but also provided us with our adoption papers, making us sons and daughters of the Most High God. Wow. Let those glorious truths sink in and let them encourage your heart this season. And let us, when we, during this Advent and Christmas season, as we reflect upon and celebrate the incarnation and birth of our Savior, let us always keep in mind what his incarnation and birth was for the purpose of. Namely, being able to go to the cross and pay for our redemption on the cross of Calvary and rise from the dead for our justification that we might receive the gift of eternal life. Let us keep that gospel-centered focus during this season. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, sovereign and eternal God, we thank you for the finished work of Christ your eternal and only begotten Son, 
the one who is the second and last Adam, the one who was born under the law to redeem those of us who were under the law but are now in Christ. We pray that by your spirit these truths would be a source of great comfort, peace, hope, and joy in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified as we continue our worship of you this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.